What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All of the Above Podcast Extra. As you know, we normally drop these in between our full episodes. Our most recent full episode um, had a super dope guest on it, Jason Torres Ronhell, California Teacher of the Year. And those full episodes are video format and have a whole bunch of headlines, all kinds of dopeness in there. But we are currently in between full episodes um, for a minute, for a minute, because one of our co-hosts, well, my name is Manuel Wrestling, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher, but um, my wonderful co-host, Jeff, decided to leave the country and take a much needed, much deserved break. But thanks to just advances in technology and our super huge AOTA budget of very little, um, we're able to bring this episode to you via satellite, basically, basically. Uh, And Jeff is here with me. And Jeff is actually in the future because I think it's like a, what is that? A 15 hour, 15 hour time difference or something like that. It's like a whole nother day where you're at right now. <laughs> it's tomorrow for you hey. <laughs> right now. Nice. How's the future? How's the future? Did we solve everything? The future is uh, pretty much like it was yesterday, man. The trash is still trash and the beauty is still beautiful. So, you know. I'll take that. Man, how you doing, man? Talk to us, man. Talk to us about your uh, your gallivanting overseas. My gallivanting, yes. So um, so I'm doing great, uh, all things considered, man. Well, I, um, I, I believe we mentioned on a, on a recent passing period that I was going to be doing some traveling abroad, and we weren't sure if we were going to be able to make this episode happen, just given like Wi-Fi access and other kinds of things where, where I was going to be traveling to. But uh, happy to report the signal is strong. Um, and I am currently, as we speak, on a small island off the southern coast of Thailand. Um, and I have been in the wonderful country of Thailand for the last uh, approaching three weeks now. I have a, like a three-week trip total. And um, so this phase of the trip uh, involves being on this tropical paradise island and doing things yeah. like sipping, sipping uh, lemongrass mules on the ocean <laughs> and deciding nice. if I want to soak in the pool or soak in the Gulf of Thailand. Uh, that, <laughs> those are the rigorous decisions I'm making. Um, you know, taking cooking classes at a little organic farm and learning to make spring rolls and pad thai and deliciousness like that so that sounds wonderful that sounds beautiful it is yeah Yeah. there's no no two ways about it it has been an amazing experience i have not left the country manuel since 2014 so it's been uh the entire time that i've lived in la i have been in these continental united states and uh, it was time for me to get a, a stamp in the passport and get a real, like a legit, for real, for real, once in a lifetime vacation in. And uh, folks may remember, I'm, I'm currently on sabbatical um, from work, which is why I can do things like take a three-week trip like this. Um, and it is, it's just been, you know, I think with maybe the exceptions of like going to a country you go to a lot you know, for people to do that, or, you know, maybe going to Canada, most of Canada is like not that different than America or something, you know, or maybe you can say that about certain Mexican cities as well, where there's just like lots of cultural overlap with the United States, uh, in some ways. Um, 
everywhere, every other time I travel abroad, I feel like it changes you as a person, you know, like you just, um, you learn so much and you're personally, at least I'm always reminded, I'm like hit with these waves in the beginning of like how small and arbitrary our experiences. And I don't say that to be like nihilistic or anything, but just the like the things that we come to build our lives around that we expect to be like what normal is are so arbitrary. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like what breakfast is, you know, it's like, there's no rule book that says breakfast has to be, you know, cornflakes and scrambled eggs or whatever. Right. Like it's, it's just what we do, what many people do in America. Right. And people in other places do different things and it's not better or worse. It's just like different. It has a different history and a different origin, a different culture around it. And, uh, you know, so coming to a place with, you know, a totally different language, a tonal language, uh, primarily Buddhist country, um, you know, very different sort of experience with, um, colonialism and drawing of national boundaries, you know, it's a monarchy, you know, uh, like it's just a very different, uh, everything in some, in some ways in the United States. And, um, it's great. It's, it's such a, like a, a privilege and a, uh, just a learning opportunity to be in a place where like you, your assumptions are not the assumptions, you know, you're, <laughs> you're the foreigner, right. And you have to sort of learn and, and be open-minded in new ways. That's just, you know, you can do that to some extent in the United States by kind of stepping out of your bubble and stuff, but it's different when like, Wherever you go, you can't read the stuff on the labels at the store. And, you know, <laughs> like yeah. you're just, uh, you know, a foreigner in a different way. Um, but it has been a, it's been an amazing experience, man. I learned so much. And, you know, I'm sure I'm just getting the tip of the iceberg of what it, you know, what it means to be Thai or to, you know, live in Thailand. But um, so grateful for this experience, man. Yeah, man. Uh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I fully expect a, a full report on the status of education in Thailand when you get back, because we are obviously a education podcast and I want you to be out there. Uh, you better uh, be on the lookout for critical race theory, Jeff, because I hear that Marxism stuff is going worldwide, worldwide. So we need some investigative reporting. Uh, on a, yep. Yes, yes. Uh, on a couple of occasions, man. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I was walking by schools, um, one in Bangkok and then one in uh, the city of Chiang Mai, which is a northern Thailand, smaller city. Mm. And um, in Bangkok, I think it was like a middle school. Maybe it was just like a secondary school general, but it was like young teen type of type of kids, you know, let's say maybe 12 to 16 or something. And they were, um, I don't know if it was PE or recess or, something but um the kids were like outside playing volleyball and um there's just something like universal about school i'm convinced man because i was walking down the street i couldn't yet see the school 
I don't speak the language, but you just hear a certain pitch of youthful sounding voice, a certain concentration yeah. <laughs> of kids. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, I have no idea what's being said. I don't know if they're happy. I don't know if they're angry. I don't know if there's a fight. I don't know if everyone's smiling and giggling. I just know there's a whole bunch of kids doing something <laughs> over here. And I'm like, nice. you could, the nice. educator just like senses it, right? So I, I got a good laugh out of that. I had to sort of like resist taking pictures. So like, this is weird taking, you know, pictures of these kids. <laughs> this, giant Amer- this giant American taking pictures of kids. Yeah, that would be a little bit weird, man. Yeah, so I held off on that. But I was like, this, it was just a beautiful moment for me. And then um, the second one was I was walking by this elementary school in, uh, in Chiang Mai. And it was, it must have been, uh, pickup time, even though it was super late. It was mm. like 5.30 p.m. And, um, but I turned this corner, similar kind of thing. You just hear like a buzz. I turn this corner and boom, there's just little kids everywhere. There's all these little vendors that are across the street from the school that sell like snacks and, you know, ice cream and little treats and right. stuff, right? And then there's like the vendors that pull up with the cards and like just pull up with a cooler and a blanket, like put out stuff. And it reminded me so much of, I feel like I see that less in LA, but in New York, you know, like around dismissal, the ice cream truck would pull up, the like the little, um, you know, like Puerto Rican vendors with like the bike with the little cooler in front that has the, the ices, the little cocos, like, right, right, right. Like, you know, pull up outside of school. And it was, I was just like, there's something universal about school. Like the kids get out, they want a snack. The parents are like lined up doing pickup, you know, <laughs> like the kids yeah. are all just abuzz with energy. And um, I was like, man, I have, again, I don't understand anything that's being said. And I feel like I know exactly what's happening right now. <laughs> like, you know, who's it. having fun? Who's talking smack about each other? Who's just touching each other and then running away because they don't know how to handle their feelings or whatever, you know? Like, right. it's just the human experience, man. I love that. I love that. That's super dope. Nice, nice. Well, um, for our listeners, hopefully, uh, I'm assuming the audio is coming through fine. Obviously, we're recording um, Jeff via Zoom. But if there's any issues with audio, you know, apologies for that. But um, some of you might be listening to this passing period on your commute to work on a dreary Monday morning. Um, and if you if the audio is coming through really well, you might be able to catch some glimpses of um, ocean waves in the background because Jeff is not far from the ocean. And if you're feeling some type of way about that, commuting to work as Jeffrey's out there enjoying a nice, um, warm breeze. Um, I'm with you. I'm with you because I'm over here recording on a late Friday night and I am tired and I am quite jealous, quite jealous of my co-host. Um, but I do hope you enjoy the rest of your travels for sure. And absolutely positively, um, you know, just excited for you to have this opportunity to do all that, man. So, so yeah, but that being said, you know, the fight, the fight for educational justice moves on and there's some news to talk about. Uh, there's actually a lot we could talk about, but, you know, we're going to talk about this uh, story that just broke today. Um, not story. Well, I mean, this this um, this article that just broke today about um, an approach, an approach to helping teens who are dealing with um, mental health crises, because, of course, there's a lot of discussion about the mental health toll of not just the pandemic, but just all of the things. And this uh, this story brought a, you know, pretty interesting 
I don't know, I think somewhat interesting um, lens on ways that districts and schools could try to address that, given the obvious shortage of mental health professionals um, nationally, but especially in our schools. So so we'll talk about that. But I do want to um, just quickly um, let our audience know that I, like Jeff and like a lot of y'all, um, I am an old and um, I had the privilege in my old age this week of being part of a dissertation defense that um, it was a, a, a man defending his dissertation, a man, a grown man who was once my student as a 10th grader way back in the day, in my early years in the profession, a sophomore, world history. As I said on Twitter, he probably still owes me some assignments from his uh, world history class, sophomore year. And um, and this man uh, just earned his dissertation, His just earned his doctorate, I should say, just earned his doctorate through USC, uh, the Rossier School of Education over there. And I got to be on his dissertation committee and see him defend this week. So that is my, um, I guess, highlight of my week as an educator is seeing this former sophomore in his grown educator role, as now he's an administrator up in Northern California. Actually, actually, he's an administrator at the school I graduated from at my old high school, which is wild. And I taught him at a different high school in Northern California before I came down here to um, to Pasadena, to the Los Angeles area. So just wild, just wild. And I am doing a lot of reflection on just how many years have passed since I entered the classroom. And... Um, just, you know, where all the other other students might be at. So shout out to Dr. Bradford. And I just thought that was dope. That was dope. So no ocean waves and no exotic travels at this moment, at this moment, although I do hope to travel this summer. But I did get to see a wonderful dissertation defense. And, you know, just a little reminder that the, the little ones that we deal with in our classroom, not deal with, the little ones that we interact with and and um, get to teach and, and um guide in some some small way, grow up to be adults. And if we do things right, and if we set them up well with the right support systems and the right guidance, they they turn out to be pretty dope. In this case, maybe super dope adults. So, you know, shout out to all the other educators out there that have been in it for a minute. I know this is a year 19 for me, but a lot of folks who do listen to our show um, have, have been in it for way more than 19. So shout out to all of y'all. Um, I think all of us together, teamwork makes his dream work, as I like to say in my class, and all of us together helping helping um, young people hopefully build a, a better tomorrow for everybody. So with all that being said, it ain't all sweet. It ain't all sweet out here. And we have some serious uh, mental health challenges going on with our young people in particular. So Jeff, what what is the story that we're uh, touching on this week? Yeah, man. Well, we have a, a fascinating piece that uh, was published on March 3rd in the Heckinger Report, uh, written by Anya Kamenitz. I hope I'm saying that name correctly. Um, but this piece is titled, A Surprising Remedy for Teens in Mental Health Crises. The provider shortage is real, but teens can be empowered to step up for each other. So, um, and shout out to the Heckinger Report, because they, they just write some fascinating stuff. We talk about a fair amount of their stories over, over the years on the show. Um, so, uh, I think the article stands out for a few reasons, Manuel, because it's speaking to something that I think every educator 
who's who has been especially who has been in the profession pre-pandemic and since knows to be real and this is from my anecdotal conversations at least true from the entire spectrum like early childhood ed to college right um that folks are just seeing the ripple effects of the pandemic particularly through the lens of mental health there's probably lots of there's definitely lots of other lenses we could talk about, but, um, you know, in terms of seeing, you know, we're, we're sort of quote unquote back to normal, but also it just doesn't feel normal, right? Like the, the struggles with, uh, community relationships, um, you know, stress, anxiety, self-harm, suicidal ideation, all these kinds of substance use, all these kinds of things, um, seem to have, uh, escalated um, pretty much across the board. And um, and then there also seems to be some, this is probably not the, you know, what a, a psychologist would call it, but I will just say in more layman's terms, like developmental delays for, um, for young people as a result of the pandemic. So you kind of layer on like uh, mental health challenges with like being a little, perhaps a little less mature in some ways than they might otherwise be had they not had to go through the last few years of like disruption, fear, et cetera, right? Loss, those sorts of things. So, you know, this is the the backdrop. Hopefully everybody, you know, uh, kind of understands and, and can relate to in some way. And this piece is speaking about like both the extent of the issue and also some interesting things that are happening um, at some schools they're citing, particularly schools that seem to be jumping out the gate on this tend to be in, you know, more affluent areas. Um, but, uh, but we're seeing um, teen mental health first aid practices and training being implemented with staff in schools and with young people themselves to essentially do what they're, what they're, um, terming in the article, and, and as I understand, this is sort of a term in the profession more broadly as like a population health approach, right? So not just thinking about individuals, but thinking about the community at large and how to build supportive structures around young people. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, I think, fascinating on many levels. And just to give some, maybe some numbers and context, right? Um, we have, at, in terms of our infrastructure around mental health, some real like challenges to overcome. So uh, the article talks about, you know, mental health care providers are scarce in our country. Um, in 2019, there were just 14 practicing child and adolescent psychiatrists uh, for every 100,000 children. Now, if you add on to that, psychologists, social workers, um, count trained counselors, that number is certainly larger than 14. And actually, you know, the majority of, of uh, the mental health supports that young people need don't require a psychiatrist, right? Don't necessarily require medication. So that's an important asterisk there. But um, the American Academy of Child and uh, Adolescent Psychiatry says the children with the most serious diagnoses wait on average several years for appropriate treatment. And the CDC says that 80% of children and youth who need treatment have no access to a specialized mental health provider. The shortage of care is worse, not surprisingly, in rural areas for Black, Indigenous people, and other people of color, and for LGBTQ youth. 
Um, what's more, it takes years for people to qualify as mental health counselors, psychologists, or psychiatrists, meaning this problem isn't going to solve itself quickly. So um, in this context, right, um, they do some interesting exploration of things that these schools and districts in different parts of the country, the article focuses a lot on a district in Ramsey, New Jersey, which is a uh, affluent suburb of New York City, um, is doing with training staff and young people to be like mental health first aid uh, responders. Um, and, you know, creating the conditions within which students can talk about, name, and respond in healthy, productive ways to a lot of the symptoms the young people are having because of these mental health issues. So, you know, chronic stress, anxiety, panic attacks, you know, um, uh, being able to confront in a responsible way, like, are you thinking about or have you thought about harming yourself, things of that nature. Um, and, you know, that's a, I think, a beautiful thing, man. It, it, like, obviously in an imperfect system, uh, <laughs> this, is not, this is like trying to make a really large Band-Aid. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's still root causes to tackle. But in a world where, you know, we have control over what we have control over as educators, I like the, you know, this idea of saying, like, we should put not only time and energy and money, um, but our human resources into creating an environment where, um, you know, there's going to be uh, a healthy response to normal kinds of needs uh, that, that people have from a, from an emotional and mental health perspective. And my, you know, obvious assumption here is that this is going to help prevent lots of greater escalation of mental health challenges, which as we know in our country too often leads to things like chronic substance abuse, homelessness, um, involvement with law enforcement and incarceration, and then the long-term effects of all those things, right? Which is like literally early death, uh, <laughs> you know, um, and that sort of thing. So um, I love it. Uh, you know, there's there's more we need to do here, obviously, from a root cause perspective, but um, I am excited to see this. I hope that this is the kind of thing that we can start to see more broadly, Manuel, as, as one step in the direction of reevaluating what's actually important when we think about success metrics in education. Yeah, I agree um, with that. And I agree that this sounds, you know, I mean, this sounds very, I, I would say, promising. It, it reminds me of years years ago um shoot maybe like seven eight years ago now i had a class of freshmen um it was a program that that um i was working at the time that took freshmen who had various levels of involvement in in street gangs and some other activity and i was trying to um help them in you know whole host of ways but one one thing that I was really trying to impress upon them is the importance of helping helping each other um and reaching past their their differences uh to really help each other because you know the odds um the 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 struggles that they would encounter um and especially within high school would be so great that like they would really benefit from helping each other through um in any case um I remember there was a time when I was teaching another class a, a 
class of my seniors. And a group of these boys showed up to my door in the middle of the class period. And I, I you know, I opened the door. I was like, what's going on? And they had one of their classmates who was just crying. Like, he was just crying tears. And they're like, Rustin, we don't know what happened. We don't know what to do. But but he's not he's not right. He's not right. And, um, you know, it was a whole long story about what had happened. But, you know, long story short, for as for the purposes of this conversation here, um, basically, they understood that their, their friend was going through something and needed some help. And it was one of my proudest moments because here they were actually helping each other out instead of having the uh, mentality that they came in with, which was like, you know, I'm gonna just do me, you know, this, that, whatever. Um, and it was a really proud moment for me. But it, it it, I think, highlights the fact that young people are really eager to help each other out, especially their friends. And oftentimes, they, they, they want to help, but they don't know what to do. So this program here that's, that's uh, discussed in this piece, uh, Teen Mental Health First Aid, like the approach, to, the approach that they're taking is helping young people understand how to serve as, you know, kind of like first responders in terms of like assessing a situation and providing like the immediate type of support that might help their friend through it um, as they, you know, wait for an adult, a trusted adult or somebody um, to offer further help. So this idea of like, you know, kind of like first aid, but for mental health and teaching young people how to do that, I think, I mean, I love that because there's, there's obviously no way that we could um, in any kind of like serious way right now have enough mental health providers, enough resources at all of our schools to make sure everybody's covered. So helping young people understand how to help each other. I, I know they're eager to because this, this little group of freshmen that I had years ago, like they wanted to help uh, their classmate. They didn't know what to do. So they just brought them all the way across campus to me. And, I, you know, young people, if we could help them understand how to support each other, how to recognize when somebody might be going through something, when somebody might be um, having a, a panic attack or some kind of crisis and how to like effectively respond like that. To me, that's, I mean, that's, that's very solutions oriented and seems re relatively feasible for, for schools to, you know, get on the, um, on the, get with the program of trying to like, you know, uh, bring this sort of training to them, to their teachers and to their students. I, as a classroom teacher, like sign me up for this training because I honestly don't know what to do. I have had young people in my class have panic attacks and I had never seen a panic attack in the past, but now they're happening more routinely. And I would love some concrete training in how to act as a first responder in that context, something beyond what I what I am doing now, which is taking them directly to our wellness center. Shout out to Miss Nancy um, so they could get some help there. But like, I would love to know a little bit more about what I could do in the meantime. Um, and certainly it'd be great to see my students trained and what they could do in the meantime. So sign me up. This is a great effort. But at the same time, like this, this just can't be our new normal though. Like we have to, at some point, like as a society, really do some deep reflection as to what is going on and how we could get out of this besides just training ourselves and how to like respond on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Like the mental health crisis is massive. Obviously, we need to be cultivating teachers of tomorrow because of the looming teacher shortage. We need to really, really be focusing and thinking about also how we could cultivate more mental health providers and encourage and build up those career pathways because clearly we need it. And we can't just keep living like this, man. Like we can't keep living in a world where there's just anxiety, depression, panic attacks, all this stuff all over the place. And it just seems to be getting worse in a lot of ways. So I love this, this, you know, uh, approach for now, for sure. But at the same time, like just a reminder, man, 
this can't be the new normal. Like, I don't know how much longer we could just go on feeling like we're just living through crisis. Like this is, it's tough for me and I'm a grown ass man. So I can't imagine how it is for, for our young people. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm, you're making me um, think about a little bit of the data that they shared in the article, Manuel. Um, so it began talking about the sort of case of this young woman in New Jersey at Ramsey High School who, you know, had a panic attack and her friends who had been trained, you know, stepped in to support, right? They then jump west to Iowa to Ottumwa, I hope I'm saying that correctly, a uh, town in Iowa, uh, much more rural setting, and like many rural districts in the country, like is not particularly well funded. Um, and so at Ottumwa High School, um, they, uh, the school serves a population much lower income than Ramsey. They have just one dedicated mental health counselor for its 1,300 students. Uh, Ramsey High School has two for 780 students. Now, I'll say two for 780 students is still, by any like rational measure, a fairly substantial caseload, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, having that's what 390 kids each, okay? Imagine trying to like attend to the mental health needs. Of, now, of course, in your 390, you know, a lot of kids are going to be just fine and not seek out any services, right? But like, even in the privileged situation, our numbers ain't right. And then you go to the head one for 1300. It's like, you know, it's, it's you know, spitting yeah. into the wind or whatever, right? Um, that's not at all to dismiss the importance of that one. But it is to say, you know, to just echo, I think what you're, you know, what you're pointing out here is like we have, this is a big structural challenge that we're facing. And we have perhaps not yet begun even the slow, what's going to be a slow process of marshalling enough resources in terms of training professionals to meet the need. And at the same time, Actually, what I find interesting about this, uh, the approaches um, that they're highlighting in the article here, Manuel, is that in addition to being like this big wide band-aid, like, like I said earlier, uh, they also, at least anecdotally, um, or maybe a little more than anecdotally, but at least, you know, by some measure, are seeing that the existence of the big wide band-aid has some preventative effect on escalation of problems that start with something small. I'm feeling lonely and isolated. And if I can get support in the lonely and isolated phase, then like, and this is a dramatic example, right? But then like, maybe I don't become the next school shooter, right? Um, and that's not to place blame anywhere on, you know, other than the individuals who are, who are committing those heinous acts, but is to say, you know, we, we just like, when we think of physical health, right? Like if I can, if I'm just, you know, overweight and have high blood pressure, I can deal with it at that stage instead of having to get my chest cracked open and get my heart, you know, <laughs> bypass done, right? And these sort of more extreme and resource intensive interventions down the road. So um, it's interesting that, um, there uh, was some preliminary findings shared in the article from Johns Hopkins School of Public Health that pointed out that two-thirds of teens surveyed uh, who had been trained in this program um, reported not only that they were it was helpful to others, but that they used the self-care strategies from the training course to deal with their own stress. Okay, so like the 
the educational component of going through this training is also empowering young people and they didn't they don't comment on the adults but honestly given the amount of stress educators have i wouldn't imagine i would imagine it's probably helpful to some of the adults too you know who carry yeah. a lot of the you know kind of secondary trauma from from work in in the community and so you know this is also equipping people with knowledge skills that they can use to to handle the all the challenges they're having in their own life right and so I, I, for that reason, it also stands out to me as like, you know, this is the kind of thing that, it, you know, in my inner dreams about education, like this is the kind of stuff we would be doing if we are doing more of, if we really reevaluated like what does success, like what are, why do we have school? How should we know if school is being effective? in our society. Um, and if we if we stepped outside of the paradigm we have right now, which is like test scores, graduation rates, college acceptance, and you know, and I'm not saying those are worthless, but I am saying that like I think they're they're secondary to like healthy, uh, feeling, you know, uh, like you have community and you're, you know, accepted, having a strong sense of self-worth and self-identity and self-esteem right and like we don't like to talk about those things for lots of reasons and historical and otherwise in this country but um but i think when there's a crisis it becomes so clear like you know it gets very uh very maslow's right <laughs> like like nobody cares about the ap score if your kid is in the office crying and talking about cutting, you know, themselves and ending their life, right? Like it becomes real clear, real quick, what's actually important. And, or at least the like order of, <laughs> of importance in these things. And, and, you know, that's an, that's an extreme example, but also maybe illustrative of like, what if we thought different about some of this stuff, right? What if, you know, what if our, our biggest, wondering about a school and its health was like how you know uh how uh, accepted in the community and seen and validated by their peers do kids feel you know how accepted for who they are do they feel how how many of our students feel like they they have a talent that they've identified and that they're good at and that the school provides space, resources, opportunity for them to cultivate that talent. You know, like these sorts of things that I think are really tied to like becoming a healthy adult and being able to therefore contribute to a healthy community. You know, I think these are a lot of questions we like haven't really asked, or maybe in fairness, we do have a lot of schools and districts and even some states that use like student surveys and community surveys to assess schools. So maybe we're just starting the journey down the road of like some of these things I think are actually the stuff that matters the most uh, and centering that in our conversation when we think about like what schools are failing and what schools are thriving and this sort of thing. Yeah. And I'm glad you point that out because I think now, you know, more than ever, it is, you know, important for us in education to make sure that we center some of these things that matter most in, you know, uh, in these times, especially, you know, we were at the, uh, the privilege of taking some students to uh, Colin Kaepernick's um, Know Your Rights Camp in Los Angeles a, a few weekends ago. And, um, 
you know, the, the rights that, you know, they all got t-shirts with the list of rights and, and all the workshops were wonderful, were really brilliant. Colin himself was clearly like in his element working with young people, like clearly um, huge, huge heart for, for the work that he's doing. And, um, you know, the rights that, that students were focused on and learning about, um, some of them, you know, I'm thinking about as you, you know, just said what you said there about these important things, because, you know, it's you have the right to be healthy, you have the right to be safe, you have the right to be loved, you have the right to be alive. And, and these really fundamental things, it, it's just really important, I think, that we bring them back to the forefront, especially right now, um, because clearly our, our young people aren't, aren't doing great, by and large, um, by these, many of these uh, measures. And, and it's important that we really center the fact that yes, they do have the right to be healthy, and it's it's upon us as adults, the ones who you know in large part um, have created this hellscape that we're living in now, to um, to help them um, learn how to support each other in that mental health journey, and you know, in addition to physical health and and and, and more. But like you know things like this like to see the the Johns Hopkins results that you that you mentioned about how this program helps folks not just learn how to help each other and help their friends but also help themselves through some of these um self-care techniques and and you know there's so much more than just the you know the typical like self-care that we keep hearing about the cliche type self-care but like actual techniques for helping themselves through uh panic moments and through depression and through um the feelings of anxiety like it's just really 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 important i think that we center some of that discussion more in our education discussions than than we do and of course there's you know all the challenges out there all the you know the um the so-called culture war stuff and you know this we got to get back to reading and writing and arithmetic and fundamentals and this and that but it's like nah man none of that matters um to a young person who's really going through it like none of that none of that matters to a young person who's really going through it so um i don't know man this sounds good but i could also see Programs like this become sort of the um, misused by folks who would, you know, use this to just check off like, well, you know, self-care and techniques, you know what to do. And then, you know, move on and not really have those more serious, uh, wider ranging conversations about why young people are feeling the way they are, why we have, we're seeing what we're seeing. So, um, you know, this is, I think, a, a step. And I, I, again, sign me up for it. And the fact that, you know, I'm glad the the author here, uh, Anya, I think it's common nets. Um, I was on a zoom with her actually earlier in the pandemic about like grading and reopening schools and stuff, but you know, she does some dope reporting. And I think this was also in the Washington post, this article here, but, um, damn, I forgot what I was going to say. I started talking about her. Well, let me say this. Um, I think that as an educator, when I look at my students and I ask them how they're doing, and so many of them, so many of them answer about like, oh, I'm tired, Rustin, I'm tired, I'm tired. It's like they're always tired, except for like that 10 minutes or 15 minutes after lunch when they are when they are not tired. In fact, they're bouncing off the freaking walls. But other than that, like they're always so, and it's just like, why are they always so tired? And it's I think it's emblematic of just the challenges that they have right now with all of the things. It's more than just sleep schedule. It's like all of the things that are weighing on them, all of the things that are, are causing them to feel these feelings of anxiety and depression and having programs like this. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Anya, I think in this uh, piece, did a great job of pointing out that like, yes, it's the wealthier districts, the mostly white areas uh, that are jumping on this. And that's a problem. Like that's a emerging inequity there in terms of uh, who has 
who has the resources to do something about the mental health challenges that their young people um, are facing. So shout out to her for for pointing that out several times in the piece about like the the looming equity issues here. But um, but yeah, like we we need to do something. When I say we, I mean all of us educators, uh, school system, of course. Um, but like just as a nation, as a society, we need to do something because things are not right, and this cannot be the new normal. And you know, programs like this, I think, are an important tool. As long as they're not misused by districts, that'll just be like, okay, checked off that box. Um, and we can make time for this. Like, yes, this takes time. This is a whole curriculum and stuff like that. But like, I remember learning how to freaking square dance. Like, throw that out. Throw out the square dancing and <laughs> put this in there. Actually, no, I mean, square dancing, maybe maybe for some kids, that is like a nice mental health break uh, for them. But like, we could find time in programming to focus and center mental health because these kids have the right to be healthy and to be safe and loved and we could do it man we could do it yeah dude that's you just took me right back dude we we had square dancing in pe class when i was a kid yeah same <laughs> same I'm like I, you know and then similarly i'm like look square dancing is a like interesting cultural practice like i'm not i'm not mad at square dancing as a as a thing and as a potentially fun way to get kids up and active i'm just laughing at the like utter lack of cultural relevance <laughs> that's going on yeah. but um uh and also the point you're making which is a good one which is like we we can invest in the things that we decide are important <laughs> so yeah. um yeah man well the 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 accompanying point i want to add to what you're saying there um is and and definitely shout out to anya for for the kind of equity lens that she brought to this article i i mean there's not that much information here about like the why behind the you know potential inequities that are that are growing and i will say she points out costs of the program and honestly from an education like administrator lens it's not that expensive you know what I mean? Um, it talks about like 52000 for a district level package of training. That's not outside the bounds of, you know, when you think about how much districts and states spend on curriculum, for example, or spend right. on testing, that's a tiny drop in the bucket, okay, of the budgets that are spent on the things that we have decided are the most important. Um, in education. And I'm, I'm not here to say, like, let's stop spending money on good curriculum. But I am here to say, like, oh, we can find $52,000. And, um, you know, there are, you know, dollars that are earmarked for certain things from the federal government that could be used to, you know, to support this. I'm sure you could, you know, an, an industrious state school leader or district leader could could find philanthropic partners who would fund this sort of thing like this couldn't happen if we decide it's important the money i mean there may be some i would imagine honestly manuel that like rural areas might have the toughest time because if you have like a massive geographic district with a small student yeah. population and you just have like low funding and a huge problem with like diffuse population a problem that just probably doesn't sound right but i mean like the challenge of like that context uh, might be the hardest with you know that I can envision to make this happen, but it could happen. It could happen. We gather people from PD and stuff all the time, and you know this these dollar amounts are not certainly not cheap, but they're not radically expensive in in our profession. And so, you know, it does stand out to me as like, huh? I wonder. You know, I, I don't know what that says, right? Um, yeah. But uh, but 
I, I found this really intriguing. I think there's like some great potential here for us to learn from what's happening in these kind of examples and to think differently about what's important and where we're going to, you know, spend our time and resources uh, more broadly, especially at this time where we're seeing so many needs, you know? Yeah. So, so many needs. And not, not to harp on that point, but like, I'm just deeply troubled about our young people and how they're doing right now. It's just, um, I don't know, man, it's just, it's, it's, it's tough. And you brought up uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs like a moment ago. And, you know, I have a CTE class, a career tech education class for um, careers in education. And, you know, it's a brand new thing trying to cultivate, you know, teachers of tomorrow, or whatever. But anyways, we touched on Maslow's a little bit and like sort of, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of, of, um, thinking in, in those terms, in, in those sorts of ways about motivation and needs. And, you know, of course, the the possibility that Maslow borrowed a lot of that from indigenous peoples without crediting them. But um, in any case, I bring that all up to say, um, hearing students sort of reflect on their own um, needs and their own levels of motivation right now, it's just, it's just so apparent to me, just so clear and apparent to me that kids are going through something that, uh, you know, my students of, of previous pre-pandemic and even before the pandemic, pre-social media eras, um, didn't seem to struggle with in the same kind of way. And I just think we're really in the midst or at the beginning of, of a true crisis and not to overuse that word. And I just, I don't know what to do about it. And I just feel like, um, we're going to look back on these years at, at some point maybe and just realize that like things were going in a direction and alarms were being sounded and we weren't paying enough attention. So um, definitely uh, we'll put the link to this article in the uh, show notes for this for this episode. But yeah, definitely, you know, check it out. And again, shout out to Anya Kamenetz and, and shout out to the folks at, you know, who are running this program, Teen Mental Health First Aid. And of course, this, you know. I don't know. It might not be as nice as it sounds like in this in this piece, but it's something, and it definitely sounds like it's helping young people, or at least helping many of the young people who are part of it. So, yo, man, we need more of that because because young people, man, we they are facing something, and if we could equip them with the tools and and adult educators with the tools for what to do, at least as a first responder sort of person, um, yo, man, let's do that. Let's do that. So, all right, Jeff. I know the sun is shining and the waves are crashing. So I don't want to hold you up. I don't want to hold you up too much, too much longer. Let me, you know what I'm saying? Let me but, turn uh, the camera yeah. and see see if you can. Oh, it's just too bright. But outside, yeah, yeah it's just too bright. I'm over here. I'm gonna, it's like ten o'clock at this, night over I, here. I know it's this just is a too podcast, bright. Look at that. Nobody could see what I'm doing here, but uh, I just need to show Manuel. Oh man! Right now. Look at that. Oh man, <laughs> these, folks! I'm looking at some. Waves. Yes, I'm looking at some crashing waves, some beautiful water, beautiful beach, some palm trees. And it's just like, uh, I see some folks there on the beach. Oh, man, I'm over here like dragging it. It's been a long day at school and I'm like, I got to I got to go to sleep. And I'm seeing that. Nice. The future looks bright. The 15 hours from now future, it looks bright. And that's what it's <laughs> going to look like. Yeah, Shoot. exactly. Exactly. Great stuff. Well, anything else before we get out of here? I don't know. You know, I don't know when the next episode or passing period will drop. It'll probably be a minute. You know what I'm saying? But uh, yeah, man. Anything else before we send these folks back to class? Uh, now, nah, man. The beach is calling me, so I think it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that. I love that. All right. Well, 
uh, folks, that is that is about it for this week's passing period. Uh, definitely go to our website for previous episodes of those conversations. They they are evergreen, so check them out aotashow.com. And yeah, that's 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 about it, man. Just remember, we love y'all and uh, keep up fighting the good fight, man. We appreciate y'all, aota family. And now it's time for you to go ahead and get to class. <laughs>